The Road Not Taken in American Conservatism. This is Church in Maine. Welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast at the intersection of faith and modern life. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Church in Maine is a podcast that looks for God in the midst of the issues that are affecting church and the larger society. And you can learn more about the podcast, listen to past episodes, and donate by checking us out. You can find out at our website at churchandmaine.org or churchandmaine.substack.com. Um, if you go to our Substack, you can also access some articles that I write. Um, and either place, consider subscribing and um, also consider leaving a review. That helps others find the podcast. So I hope you're enjoying things uh, in this winter time. Some places, like we are here in Minnesota, uh, don't have any snow. Uh, it's a very odd winter. Well, as we are continuing um, going into the year, this church, this podcast name is actually Church and Maine. And I've called it that because I like to talk about religion and also public affairs and where those two things intersect. Now, over the past year or so, I've done a lot about the church side of this podcast, but I haven't done as much about the main side of this podcast. So that is because I've been pretty busy. I'm a bivocational pastor. And also since July of last year, I've had to take care of my mother after she suffered a stroke. But I also felt kind of odd um, being a pastor and talking about politics. So for a while, I've kind of backed off on the political uh, side of this podcast. But the thing is, is that I've noticed I don't necessarily ignore politics when I preach. And that doesn't mean that I'm partisan. I'm not in the pulpit. But I do talk about politics in light of the gospel. So, especially in this year, this is a presidential year and a, in, in some ways a very monumental presidential year. I want to talk about where faith and politics intersect. And so I'm starting with this week's podcast, which is about American conservatism. And when we talk about the American right, right now, at least, we talk about two kind of different streams. That first stream has at least really came into the fore in the 1960s and really became prominent with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. This is the conservatism of small government, low taxes and regulation, and a strong foreign policy, especially back then towards the Soviet Union. This has been the dominant form of conservatism in the United States until recently. The rise of Donald Trump brought a new movement to the fore um, that has in many ways displaced Reaganite conservatism. This is kind of a new but also older form of conservatism, this kind of national conservatism 
is not as concerned about the size of government as the um, the kind of fusionist sign uh, uh, conservatism once did. In fact, they favor energetic government, a government that goes after its enemies. Um, as its name suggests, it tends to be much more nationalistic. It's somewhat, at, at times, almost isolationist when it comes to foreign affairs. And all in all, it can be very, at the same time, very jingoistic. Those are the two main streams of conservatism right now in the United States. But there is a third stream, a stream that's not as strong here in the United States, but is found in other democracies, um, especially democracies like Canada or Germany. The best way to describe that is humanist conservatism. And this version of the right, as our guest today will describe it, is a tradition that is, as he says, quote, driven by a desire to preserve the dignity of everyday human existence. Those mundane practices of life that sit outside the grandiosity of constitutional systems and national traditions. My guest is Jeffrey Tyler Sick, and he will talk about this forgotten branch of conservatism and how it might be able to take on the times that we find ourselves in. Jeffrey is an assistant professor of political science and history at the University of Pikeville in his native Kentucky, and he's also the founding editor and president of Vital Center magazine. We'll talk about these three streams of American conservatism and where religion plays a role. So here is my conversation with Jeffrey Tyler Sick. Well, Jeffrey, it is good to um, have you on the podcast and to talk a little bit about kind of an, I think, an unheard story of um, conservatism. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So you wrote uh, something in um, Persuasion Magazine, kind mm -hmm. of, and the title of that is Conservatives Road Not Taken. Um and I think for people who are familiar with um, American conservatism, uh, most of us are are familiar with um, people such um, kind of that the kind of the folks um, with National Review and uh, fusionism, and that whole kind of story has been a, a kind of a, a well known story right. about American conservatism. The the second story that you kind of bring up is national conservatism. That's the one that has a uh, strain that has come to fore maybe in the last eight to 10 years or so, especially with the rise of Donald Trump. But your essay talks about a third road that is present, but it's not always as visible. Um, how... Could you go about kind of just uh, giving a quick synopsis of what that road looks like? Yeah, I think, and I see this in the article, that conservatism is usually best defined by what it's trying to conserve. Mm -hmm. um, and with fusionism, they're trying to conserve 
the American founding, as they understand it, which for them is kind of a limited constitutional government. Um, national conservatives are trying to preserve a particular cultural tradition as they understand it. And mm-hmm. all, in all these cases, it's kind of as they understand it, because people are what they understand in a way. Humanist conservatives are really very much concerned with trying to sort of preserve the dignity of everyday life. Um, I was trying to explain it to a friend. I said, it's kind of like Hobbit conservatism, if you know Lord of the Rings. And yeah. Obsessed with kind of the the niceties of just being a regular person, trying to preserve that way of being for people, um, which requires all kinds of, which may require policy, but in some ways is also just a disposition um, that you kind of like that peaceful, tranquil life. And how would you define, because I think one of the things that has been interesting over the years as someone who's kind of followed American conservatism is, you know, that the national conservatism, at least in my view, has always been, there are just so many dark sides to it. I think that there are some things that they bring up that make some sense, and especially Mm -hmm. um, dealing with people of the working class, but it seems to be too bound up in, in a lot of ways of, at least to, from what I see grievance, but also, um, very limited in their understanding of, of the kind of American cultural um, background in some ways. And then when it comes to uh, fusionist conservatism, it's, I probably would find more agreement there, but it seems like they don't always answer the questions of, again, of the working class, of people yeah. who are working um, and are not entrepreneurs. Um, yeah. And so that doesn't, it always kind of falls short there um, on that side. Yeah. I have a friend um, who wrote a, a really good article about the failure of the two different approaches to conservatism to mm-hmm. kind of reconcile themselves to a modern pluralist society in some ways. Um, he says the fusionists, and I think this is right, they just see you know, what modern capitalism does. And they said, yeah, this is our political ideology. Isn't it great? Um, and it does do some great things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not always wrong. Um, the national conservatives say, we believe just reject a modern pluralist society wholesale. Um, and theirs is a kind of conservatism of rejection of the modern world in that sense. Um, both of them are not really workable solutions. The world changes. It evolves over time. There's not a lot you can do about it. You don't have to like it, um, but it does. And so both of them kind of fail to reconcile themselves, I think, to how you actually help people adapt to a changing society. One doesn't want to change at all. The other fails to see any need for adaptation to begin with. Um, And in the end, both become political failures. Um, Fusionism, I think, is in some ways failing, um, alienating a lot of working class people. Um, it was never, to be clear, a, a very working class ideology, but um, what working class it had, it is significantly alienated. And now they've been to, um, been, now the national conservatives are appealing to them, but they're ultimately doomed to fail um, for separate and in some ways more concerning reasons. So, so who would you define as some of the, the people who would be the the examples of what you're calling humanist conservatism in modern politics um no i think more in phil- for philosophically right yeah i think the the big models um 
Alexis de Tocqueville, I think, is a big model. I mean, he's a self-professed liberal, though I don't think philosophic liberalism and political sort of humanist. I think there's overlap there. Um, um, more contemporarily, I think Michael Oakeshott, um, who's a British conservative mm-hmm. thinker and who described conservatism very much in terms of a disposition and kind of limit um, the things that can ruin everyday life for people. Um, and then I think Christian democracy, as it's understood in Europe, can play a very helpful role in understanding kind of a, what's the political heart of him because Christian Democrats, better than most ideologies, get the dignity of humans, um, the dignity of human life. And when you understand that dignity, I think humanist conservatism starts to make a lot more sense in a mm-hmm. way. Um, and so the Christian Democrats and their writers like Jack Hubler my French is terrible, so goodness knows if that's how it's pronounced. Um, um, uh, are, are, I think, really great philosophic examples. But yeah, it's tend, yeah, I should say it does tend to be more of a European thing. They've had something like humanist conservatives for a long time. We've had a, what I would call in the United States, but it's not been in vogue um, the last 60, 70 years. Why do you think that is? Because, you know, one of the things that fascinates me. Oh. And and again, because I I kind of somewhat am tangentially around in the the more fusionist circles, there's a lot of talk about the Anglo-American tradition, and I think oh, yeah. there is something to that. Um, I don't want to diss that. There's always somewhat of a rejection of of the more continental conservatism, yeah. but it also seems that there's a lot about continental conservatism that could be mind and you could learn from it like we don't yeah. always you know christian democracy as you're talking about has yeah. been one um i think it was is it pope leo the eighth um because that, that his letter encyclical uh-huh. about workers um was something that was important um that kind of sprouted the christian dem- democratic movement or people who uh, like abraham um Krupier, um the the dutch politician yeah. but I guess I'm just always curious, what is it that there's always seemed to be that rejection of, of European conservatism as opposed to the Anglo-American tradition? Yeah, America, that's I a good say. question. Um, one thing, I think even the Anglo-American tradition, we're very different from the English in ways I think people mm-hmm. don't. There's ways in which the English are a lot more continental than we are. Yeah. Um, and I think you're right. There's there's a lot we could learn from um, European conservatives. I always say that the thing about European conservatives, they come of one of two types. They're the Christian Democrats, or they're like the worst sort of white nationalist. You know? <laughs> yes, <laughs> There's exactly. Not a lot of in between um, for Christian Democrat. I mean, at European conservatives. Um, but I think one one of the reasons is America began in part as a rejection of, of European society. Um, in some ways, it brings a lot of European society with it. But the people mm-hmm. who come here actively left for whatever reason. Um, and so they bring with them a culture that is different from the rest of the people who decided to leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, in a, a kind of complicated psychological way begins to affect the American tradition. That these are the people who chose to, to peace out of European society. Um, as part of that, one of the biggest effects of that is America is a very individualistic culture as compared to Europe in a lot of ways. Um, Europe tends to be a lot more statist politically, which has significant problems, I think. Um, but they also tend to be sometimes a lot more socially communitarian than Americans. 
um, community has been struggling all over the world, but has always been a lot more vibrant in Europe than it has been in the United States in some ways. Um, Alexis de Tocqueville talks about how when he comes to the United States and he journeys out into the cities, he says, it's so strange. He said, everybody just lives in their houses and there's a house a little ways down. And this is just their own little island of a world, um, which is unthinkable to him um, in the European world, where maybe you do have some farmers, but even the farmers' houses are kind of close together in the land. Um, so there's a way in which we're just a much more individualistic society. Um, that said, I think um, the the 20th century um, made America even more individualist than it sort of normally is. Um, the rise of modern capitalism, which I think is a little bit different from regular capitalism, was hugely impactful on American culture, much more than it was in Europe in some ways. Europe has a much more socialist bent um, because of their lack of individualism uh, compared to Americans. But our sort of already lack of individualism made us particularly susceptible, I think, to the worst problems of a capitalist culture. Um, which is different than a capitalist economy, I think. But uh, the idea of a very competitive, business-like society. Um, we were easy prey for that, and we got caught <laughs> in the 20th century, I believe. Kind of looking at this from a religious perspective, um, and, and talking a little bit, as you said, about Christian democracy, you know, it there are several strains of Christian democracy. There um especially its religious strain, um, in that it's both comes from some, especially from arising from Catholic social teaching, mm-hmm. um, but also from reformed, um, theology and that that movement, I think coming arises from the churches. Um, and at least for me, you know, as someone who has grown up hearing kind of about the care, caring for the poor, um, and, and, helping and dignity, especially for uh, working people, it, it kind of makes you wonder, how yeah. do you have that? Where does religion kind of, in this case, fit in with that type of a conservatism? Because I think here in America, the conservatism and religion that comes up is more moral. Um, yeah. And, you know, I, I'm not here to say it's good or bad, but that's kind of where it comes from. But it doesn't always deal with the social, um, yeah. where it seems like in, in Europe, the the religious conservatism that came up there was far more socially concerned right. um, than it was here. Well, part of it is, for, for whatever reason in America, the, the similar movements that you see in Catholic social thought and in the Reformed tradition happen to a point in early America in um, the late 1800s, early 1900s, but they're all on the left. Um, And they're somewhat on the left in Europe, too, with Christian socialists and things like that, but they're almost all on the left here. Um, And that makes that kind of um, religious thinking a lot more left-wing in the minds of most Americans, I think. Mm. Um, And as the left in America has become less religious, um, we've seen the decline of that sort of expression of religious morality, I guess you could say. Um, whereas the more right-wing version of that morality, which is where pretty much worried about how people behave and act and that kind of thing, has remained pretty strong in America um, in the Christian um, community. 
Um, why it didn't emerge on the right in America, I really could, I, I have, I don't know. My my suspicion, and this is only a suspicion, is for a long time the right in America was kind of a combination of, of the farming, more individualistic farming class that was not wealthy but but independent of a company. They they weren't subject to unions and things like that. So this was never going to be one of their huge concerns. Um, and business. And neither of those is going to be railing. So the American right has always, um, since the mid, since late 1800s, when this, these movements were kind of emerging in the United States, um, this had this um, problem. Now, if you go back to the early 1800s, you see a lot of this kind of thing on what I would consider conservatives and uh, more left-leaning progressive people in the early 19th century. You have both John Quincy Adams who in many ways is a philosophic conservative, deeply, deeply concerned about social justice. Um, and you also have people who are clearly on the left, like a lot of the abolitionists, who are equally concerned with problems of social justice. That begins to fade in the wake of the Civil War, for whatever reason. I, I, I confess I don't have a great explanation for it. That is an interesting question. I don't, I'd be interested to know the answer to it. So. Do you think one of the things I remember a year a few years ago, someone that's on Twitter that I, I talked to, um, and and these days it seems like I'm the old man on the Twitter these days, um, and I kind of brought up the question of why do we not hear much about um, certain thinkers on the right, like uh, or leaders on the right, like uh, Benjamin Disraeli here yeah. in, in the United States. The answer, I can remember the answer just kind of wasn't, I, it's basically it was kind of like they didn't, it didn't feel like it fit or something yeah. to that extent. But do you feel that sometimes that a, a thinking when it's, you know, when, uh, on the right here in America, conservatives is too limited, that we're not mm. really thinking more broadly, more, that, that it's too constricted in many ways. Either yeah. you know, you know, con either by economics or by social issues, but it's too constricted in in how its thinking goes. I think that's right. Yeah, it's it's too constricted. Um, it kind of begins, which is this is not particularly conservative um, in a in a philosophic sense. It begins with its own kind of central premise. It begins with the thesis, and then kind of compiles its evidence and heroes from that. Mm -hmm. Um. Conservatism, if you read people like Burke or Oakeshaw or Disraeli, is really kind of supposed to begin the other way around. Um, it's supposed to be, in a lot of ways, a lot less philosophic of an ideology. Kind of begin from evidence and work your way to what is the right thing. Um, and as a result, though, starting in the, you know, the mid to late 20th century, we begin with kind of the fusionist um, idea, which, so free market economics, kind of Christian traditionalist social issues, but in a weird, maybe limited government way, maybe not, it kind of depends. Um, you begin with that, and so then people like Benjamin Disraeli just really don't fit. Um, mm -hmm. These people who are deeply concerned about economic poverty and economic inequality, or economic inequality might be, but you know, helping the poor um, is probably the best way to put it. Um, it was deeply communitarian. There was in None of them, him, not an ounce of him as an individualist, is just so counter 
to what people like William F. Buckley, who was founding um, the fusionist movement in America, really thought of as conservatism. Um, the, the Intercollegiate Studies Institute, which was founded to be kind of a, a place to train young conservatives in America for a long time, was called the Intercollegiate, no, the Individualist Studies Institute. Um, there's this way in which that kind of communitarian conservative just was not accepted because they began with the premise that what makes me different from a liberal is my concern for the individual over the collectivity. Hmm. So how would you, you know, if you're looking at someone that is a communitarian conservative, be different from someone, say, on the left? No. Because I think there is always a lot of fear that, you know, well, if you start talking about the state, well, then that makes you a a leftist. And it's like, "Mm, I don't think so. But how would you define that? So I think it depends. There's the, I mean, one way you could do it is be a national conservative, and then the differences from the left are going to be obvious. That you, you know, you're going to ban porn and regulate what people do in their private homes to full extent of what you can do, um, and that'll be you know, wives will be staying home with their husbands and so. On. That's one way <laughs> you can be different from the left. Um, what may do is really, um, who I think in some ways is, uh, he's older now, I mean, it's the 1860s, but in some ways a very good example of a, a communitarian conservative. What made him really different from the left in his day was his concern that every little change be worked in to the tradition of the English people somehow. That every every change was building on something that was already there. And this made it the change a lot slower when you were trying to do social progress, but it also, in his eyes anyways, would have made the change a lot more organic. Mm-hmm. So if you went, you went to help poor people, you don't do it by overturning the aristocratic system. Let's say Benjamin Disraeli. You do it by building something within the system that has already evolved. So that was radical in that respect. Um and then there is probably going to be a difference on social issues. Um, undeniable. You don't have to take the national conservative stance, but there's going to be a difference. Um, I'm from eastern Kentucky. I live in eastern Kentucky. Um, there used to be, and there still are a few, a lot of old blue dog Democrats. Um, and not, I should say, not the not the ones of the late 20th century who were just kind of racist people who liked welfare, um, but people who who really believed in helping the poor but who also might be pro-life instead of pro-choice. Um, and who, and who in a way, were a lot more like a communitarian conservative, though being Democrats, they didn't, and also being local politics, there wasn't a huge reason to pitch themselves as such. Um, and that kind of, those people have been, in recent years, kind of replaced by the national conservatives um, politically in their various electoral districts. Um, and in a lot of ways, they were much closer to a humanist conservative, um, these kind of working class, blue collar Democrats in America. In the last 30, 40 years, they were closest to a humanist conservative, probably. Mm-hmm. So what do you think has caused the decline of, of humanist conservatism? Because you said it earlier that you think it was kind of somewhat there in American culture till about 70 years ago. So yeah. what do you think brought its demise? I think a couple of things. Um, what, one of them is um, 
we, the Cold War, we were fighting communism, which is a communitarian, collectivist ideology. Um, something that is hyper-individualistic, that is hyper-capitalist, is just an easier foil to communism um, politically. Um, and I think a lot of people felt, oh, we've seen the way anything remotely communitarian can go with fascism with communism. We don't want that. So part of it, I think, is a reaction against World War II in the United States. Europe, interestingly, has kind of a renaissance of humanist conservatism after World War II, but we don't mm -hmm. have that. Part of it, I think, we already had that kind of individualist mindset. And so the combination of our kind of revulsion at that communitarianism and our already kind of inclination towards being very individualistic made humanist conservatism seem um, Outdated. We're also at, in the mid twentieth twentieth century. This is America at kind of the height of its imperial power. Mm -hmm. This we become the superpower, and I'm just frankly, humanist conservatism is not a a great fit for like an imperial world. Um, if you're very concerned with like preserving the dignity of everyday life, it becomes difficult. If that's your primary concern, then tremendous economic growth. And these other things that are really important if you want to dominate the world um, are not as likely to happen quickly. I'm not going to say they won't happen, um, but they're never going to be the same priorities. I think these two things really undermined it. Um, I also think there was a humanist concerns at the time, but did um, rather bad politically um, for a number of reasons. Um, they were a lot of them were kind of in the middle. And they struggled to differentiate what made them a real conservative. Um, instead, they just kind of seemed um, on the Republican side like watered-down Democrats and on the Democratic side like watered-down Republicans. Um, and in the end, both sides kind of got um, squeezed out. There's a, a hilarious video of FDR, um, and I won't try to do an impersonation or anything, but it's a, he's running for re-election, and he says... And this is what the Republicans say. He says, Please, we love Social Security. We love welfare. We want to give you more Social Security. We'll give you more welfare. But we're going to do it better. We're going to do it cheaper. We're going to do it smarter. Leave it up to us. And he's pointing in front of them because he says, well, what's even, why, why would you vote for a Republican if they're identical to a Democrat? Um, and they were identical. People like Wendy Wilkie who were running against FDR had significant differences from him. Um, even though they maybe liked some of those welfare policies, but they did a very bad job making that clear. Um, and in the end, that also undermines um, humanist conservatism, I think. Hmm. So, do you see any type of a room today for a revival of humanist conservatism? And and if so, do no. you see it happening now? I think there is room for a revival. Um, I don't know if it's uh, well, I'll say, but I think it's happening in a minute. But I think there is re great room for a revival. Um, I think um, the Trump faction of the Republican Party, the National Conservatives, have kind of horned in on humanist conservatism's natural place. But I think if candidates can get there into those districts um, and into other districts that are maybe just a lot more moderate and feel lost in the current political climate. So I think there's kind of two openings. One is the politically lost, left behind, which a lot of people feel that way. 
Um, and the other are maybe the economically distressed, politically left behind in a different sense, and that they feel that the country has left them behind. Um, because it's a more moderate, it's a more um, appealing approach than Trump. And so I think you could, I'm not going to say you can pick up a lot of Trump people, but you can pick up some people who I think would be inclined to support national conservatism. And you can pick up a whole bunch of moderates, especially um, in the suburbs, mm-hmm. where polls show that voters are particularly, um, they feel a little like nobody really represents their viewpoints. So I think even this conservatism has great appeal in those places. It will take can it'll take political leaders willing to to go out and sell it, um, which is a, an important skill. That our um, rhetoric is in a lot of ways more important than ideas because if you can't sell the ideas, it doesn't matter um, how good they are. Um, so it take it will take that. And if it's happening, there's a small chance I think that it's happening. The um, Blue Dog Caucus in the House of Representatives has recently kind of reconstituted itself. Um, and follows a lot of these policies um, or, the, or the principles I, I kind of outline in this. Um, and they, they certainly see themselves as being appealing to rural red-leaning congressional districts. Um, I think it's an open question how successful they'll be. If they're very successful, I mean, this could be humanist conservatism in the world. Um, otherwise, it will take people, real innovators on the in the Republican Party probably to build it up um, in areas that have been dominated by, by Trump as kind of an alternative to Trump. And probably should have asked this earlier, but I, I'm kind of curious, where do you feel that both fusionist and national conservative fall short? Mm. Um, and why are they falling short? Because I think that's even the bigger question right now is, yeah. um, especially with fusionist conservatism, one could say that back in the uh, 70s and 80s, that was a heyday, that when it was yeah. doing very well. well Bill Clinton um, is, is, is more fusionist than Donald Trump. I think we yeah. into well into the 90s. And, mm-hmm. and But somehow that branch is not as, or it doesn't seem to be yeah. working now. Um, yeah. So I'm kind of curious, what what is it that has brought them short and why? Yeah. Um, the fusionists are hyper-concerned about a tyrannical government, which is mm. completely fair. Government can become tyrannical. Um, they're especially concerned about tyrannical government and economics. Um, I think it's bad. There, there are many of them devotees of Milton Friedman, um, of Reaganomics. They believe in deregulation. They believe in low taxes. They believe that private companies should be allowed to do what they want, that it is not the government's business. Um, A lot of this has led to tremendous economic growth um, in the United States and in Europe. We are a wealthier country than we have ever been. Um, What it has also done is it has led to huge innovations in technology um, that have created the mechanization of a lot of industrial jobs. It has led to the sort of free trade that causes jobs to go overseas. Um, and, and any number of sort of these kind of innovations that remake the way the American workforce is constituted. Um, and fusionism, as a result, has done some really great things. Um, but it has also left a lot of people behind. Um, data shows that 
while the economy has grown significantly, it has grown almost entirely in urban areas. Mm -hmm. While leaving behind most of rural America. Um, and instead of sort of really understanding this is a problem, a lot of fusionists tend to blow it up. If there's not a job in your area, just move, things like this. Um, and I always say, you know, there's a housing crisis in urban America. If I said, there's no houses, why don't you just move? It would seem so uncaring. And that's exactly how. Um, these people who have been or in areas that have been economically left behind feel. They feel as though nobody cares about them. Um, and they, in return, have revolted against the people that they blame for this. Um, the people who both are not caring, the people who have executed the policies that seem like have drawn it about. Mm -hmm. um, and that's the political establishment and the fusionists having dominated the Republican Party since at least Reagan, um, perhaps before, um, are huge part of the political establishment until relatively recently. I remember in 2016, during that um, presidential election, hearing that phrase a lot, because there was a lot of talk, again, about the working class and how things right. really weren't going in certain areas and that people would always say, well, they could move. My response to that is, have you ever read The Grapes of Wrath? Um, <laughs> Moving is not always a a great option um, for people. Um, yeah. So you know it's not always so easy, and it's not. It can be you know no. people don't always want to leave their communities that they were yeah. have been long a part of, and so well, yeah. yeah. And this is what makes it so unconservative in a way. Conservatism is at the end of the day, no matter what sort. Of, it's a lot about roots. Mm -hmm. It's about being tied to the past, tied to where you belong. Um, a lot of people don't want to, I mean, my family has lived in Appalachia since the 1790s. I don't want to leave if I don't mm -hmm. have to. Yeah. Um, and is it rational? No. But conservatism has always been, philosophically at least, in, about embracing a level of irrationality in the human life, about embracing the fact um, that there's a kind of romantic, emotional element to human existence that you cannot just sort of push away. Um, this is a huge part of Edmund Burke. It's a huge part of Benjamin Disraeli. Um, it's an important part of people like Russell Kirk who are more modern. So to kind of lose this sense of this is just completely uh, bonkers. Now, national conservatives maybe take that to a different, <laughs> overcorrect the problem, I think, in some ways. Um, well, it, and I think that's been the, the frustration I've noticed with national conservatism is that they go to the other extreme and uh, yeah. it, it becomes very particular um and as you i think you've said earlier they kind of want to shut out the world um, yeah. and not deal with change and yeah. that's not helpful either because the world is changing our american society is changing and yeah. we can't we can't just put blinders on and think that we can just go to another time and that everything will be okay um you know that's has not worked and i think Part of national conservatism is, is, is also seems to be too willing to kind of play with some of more darker forces um, yeah. that have been a part of American society in the past. Oh, yeah. Well, the thing is, if you write, I mean, they're all about embracing their cultural tradition, but kind of only their cultural tradition, um, and a particularly narrow interpretation of their culture, but that's another thing. The thing is about embracing a cultural tradition entirely and kind of making that 
all your ideology is about is you lose sight of other universal truths that you can that you also shouldn't ignore. Mm-hmm. Um, the dignity of all people, equality of all races, these other sort of important things um, that we know to be true through human reason. They've kind of abandoned that that rational side of things often. I mean, not all of them are racist and not all of them are genophobes, but they have abandoned that. Um, and they refuse to kind of admit that traditions also are a kind of evolving thing. Um, I'm not Catholic, but if you are a Catholic, it is not as though the Catholic tradition stays the same forever. The liturgy no. changes, it evolves, the ends of the church change and evolve. That's the point. Tradition is supposed to be a moving thing. Um, it has some relevant relationship to its past, but it, it moves, it evolves. It kind of fell to acknowledge that. Um, I like to say that the, one of the main goals of humanist conservatism is the world will always change. The world will always have ups and downs. And so for the humanist conservative, the question is, how can you bring people and help maintain a flourishing society for them through the ups and downs, mm-hmm. uh, regardless of whatever it'll be. National conservatives begin in a very ideological way with their ideal society. It happened in the past. They don't want to move on. Whatever has moved on, they want to take it back. Um, and that's just not a helpful way to think, because things do change. <laughs> things uh, will always change. Um, there's a, a great Italian book called The Leopard, and one of the characters says in this, and I think it's a great line. Um, he says, the only way for things to stay the same is for everything to change. Um, and this is just true to human existence, I think. Hmm. We have to adapt or die. Mm-hmm. So, well, and I think that may be something to consider that, at least it should be, that conservatism is about adaptation. Yeah, because um, I think too often it's about either trying to keep things the way they are, or or what have you. Um, yeah, well, and there's um, and this has been the case for a while. I mean, William F. Buckley has the famous quote from the opening international view that being a conservative is is really about standing athwart history and yelling stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if you look at actual conservatives like Edmund Burke or Benjamin Disraeli, people who call themselves conservatives up to that point, there's very little that is less conservative than standing in throughout history and yelling stuff. Maybe standing for history like, well, slow down, let's let's do this at a reasonable pace, sure. Um, that doesn't make a catchy tagline, I admit. Um, but that's sort of the point of conservative philosophic tradition. People like Disraeli, people like Burke, people like Michael Oakeshott, is that the life of the world has complexities. The world evolves. Em- embracing those complexities and that evolution and making the best of them is kind of the key to politics. And the, the, We've lost that in America. Um, there's always big conservatives who sort of abandoned that. Um, in the wake of the French Revolution, there were a lot of reactionaries, for instance, but still. Um, we've completely lost that in America recently, I think, in some ways. Do you think that there is any hope for a kind of, to use the word, a flourishing of a humanist conservatism in the next five to ten years? Yeah, um, well, th- things are um, complete chaos right now, I think, politically, um, and it's terrible. I don't think anybody can pretend that it isn't. Uh, but the one virtue chaos has 
is that it can become a great time to build new things. Um, I was thinking recently, for instance, the Republican Party is, I think, at serious risk of making itself a regional party, um, completely losing touch with the national electorate, um, which seems deeply concerning, and it is, but it's happened several times before in American history. And every time that it has happened, the party that emerges out of the wake of that tends to be better than the one that existed before it. Because it's a party that has had to face its biggest demons and figure out how it can continue to win. Um, or the faction. Um, the Federalist Party is the most big example because the party itself completely collapsed. Um, but the Whig Party that in some ways embraced the 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 Federalist tradition, I think, was in a lot was a lot better than the Federalist Party, a lot more um in touch with a changed post-1800 America. Um, that the Federalists were attempting to reject. Um, and so there's important ways in which, um, yeah, the, things are terrible, but I think there's all the hope in the world um, that things could get better, that the right things could happen and suddenly start to flourish. Hmm. And do you see of any type of politicians that are out there that aren't kind of embracing this philosophy? It seems yeah. earlier a lot of them would probably be currently in the Democratic Party. Yeah, um, yeah, that's, that's what I, said. I thought. Like I said earlier, I think a lot of um, blue dog Democrats, um, and the modern blue dog Democrats, um, led by Mary Patola and Jared Golden and stuff like this, um, seem to be in this vein. There's a wonderful feature on them in the Washington Post. I highly recommend where they lay out a political philosophy that is not dissimilar to something like. Mm -hmm conservatism. Um, the question to me is if there's actually a place for them in the Democratic Party. Um, I think that's a live question. Um, obviously, they think there is. Um, I'm not sure every Democrat thinks that there is. Um, and also, they're, right now, their electoral base is rural America, where Trump won um, by just a little bit. He did win, but he didn't kill um, in that region. Um, that's not a whole lot of places. So can they start to win in these places that Republicans have won by a lot mm -hmm. um, or expand into other areas um, that are more entrenched blue or entrenched red? Um, there's only so many swing districts in America to which, from which you can base a faction of your party. And gerrymandering means there's a lot less than there used to be. Mm -hmm. um, so to me, I think it's a really live question if they become a flourishing part of the Democratic Party or not. Um, like there is a potential. Nobody really seems to be pushing this right now. But if Trump loses in 2024, um, if things go a particular sort of way, that maybe a wing like this of the Republican Party will start to emerge. Um, I've already seen this. Um, I live in Kentucky, like I said. Um, there's already increasingly a one-party state. There's already a faction emerging in one sort of the Republican Party um, that is a lot more moderate on social issues, not particularly pro-Trump. Um, it's still, like the Blue Dog Democrats, it's like a live question what kind of faction this will end up being, how large a faction, how important a faction. But in both cases, there's real hope that they could become bastions of humanist conservatism, I think. Hmm. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I found um, was a hope, and that ended up dashed, was... Um, 
JD or, or a, a person was JD Vance. Um, yeah. And when he um, kind of came on the scene in 2016, he seemed to, in some ways, represent that in a way. Um, yeah. And for whatever reason, my guess is more politically chose more of a nationalist um, track. But I think had he maybe stayed on that or um, he was kind of an example of what could have been of, of a more hum humanist conservatism yeah. out there. But I think that was right. He he could be the poster child for this now if he had wanted to be. And he, he didn't. Um, he went to Donald Trump route either out of genuine change of opinion or being a grifter. I hate to judge for sure, mm -hmm. but um, either way he did it, he did do it. Um, and he he was a great place for that. Um, but so I think something similar could emerge, um, especially in states like North Carolina and Georgia, especially as the South um, becomes a little bit more urban. Mm -hmm. And thus the states become a little bit politically more moderate or winnable to Democrats, a different kind of Republican, different kind of Democrat may emerge um, as competitive in those states. Mm -hmm. um, J.D. Vance is like an Ohio Republican. I don't think it's any particular surprise that for a while he seemed to be in this tradition being a kind of rural Ohio mm -hmm. from Appalachia Republican. That's the natural place for a humanist conservatism to emerge, I think. And do you think that you could see that type of conservatism arise from churches um, yeah. in a way that, you know, as we talked earlier, the roots of things like Christian democracy in Europe? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, there's a way in which humanist conservatism is less political. Mm -hmm. um, I think than fusionism and nationalism, this sort of celebration of human, of a life just well lived, mm -hmm. um, with family and friends and community, um, and that's a great thing to have in the church. Um, in general, I think that's in line with a lot of what the church is about, and this kind of filling of, of social justice and personal responsibility. I think churches that emphasize that. And then emphasize without being partisan, without saying, you know, you have to be conservative, but emphasize that that kind of life is a good life. And that kind of life um, should be the foundation for everything, including our politics, um, can become a great source. And then the church doesn't have to do the work of necessarily of, of sending people out there to do it. Um, uh, explicitly they'll have already sort of prepared and laid the ground for it mm -hmm. so i think there is an important way in which the church could play a role here mm -hmm. i think one of the things um that's kind of wrapped things up is i'm reminded of is a book i read years ago by um arthur larson who was a um I'm trying to remember what role he had, but it was in the Eisenhower administration. And the book that he wrote, it was in the late 50s, was called A Republican Looks at His Party. Um, and I think he would more fulfill that type of humanist conservative. And he um, has a, a tale of, um, and in his ways, was dealing with the more conservative people who are just kind of like, or against kind of the status or state in some mm -hmm. ways, uh, on the the taking on the, or, or accepting some parts of the new deal. And he talks about, um, two women, two grandmothers, um, 
one grandmother is in uh, wearing kind of these old clothes that are kind of tattered um, and in a covered wagon with a horse. And um, they're going off to the casino. And there's another older woman that's kind of dressed very modern um, in a sports car. And you may think she's going off to the casino. Nope, she's going to church. And I thought that that represented what was talking about, what he was trying to talk about as a conservatism, that one of them is, is living a life of dignity yeah. um, through, the, through the workings, of, you know, accepting parts of the New Deal and all that. Yeah. Another one isn't. And I, yeah. so it just seems that that was uh, what he was trying to get at in some ways. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that's actually a very good parallel. Yeah, I think so. Um, because I think in a lot of ways, um, we do, we do have the option of a conservatism that accepts. Now it's not an economic New Deal. Now, in some ways, it's um, a social. It's a social. It's the social world. It's a world that's changed. A multiracial, multicultural society, multicultural West. Um, and do we accept that um, and move on with our lives and try to create a, a conservatism in society that is reconciled with that, or? Um, do we try to reject it wholesale, um, and in the process, do the try to do the impossible and drag a whole lot of people down with us? And I think that's kind of the choice. Um, I don't think you can always pitch it that way to voters. I don't think that necessarily um, that's what they always need to hear. But I think that's that's the choice we have um, for conservatives today. Okay. Well, it's going to make it for an interesting. Um something to think about as we go through what's going to be an interesting um, election year, at least not one that I'm looking forward to. Um, uh, if, if positive, I believe not, most people are not. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it does leave some hope for, I think for things where things can go in the future. Um, even though this year might not be the year for that. Um, I think that there's still some hope out there. I think so too. There's always hope, I think. Yeah. And that's foolish of me, but <laughs> so if people wanted to um follow your writings online, where can they find you? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Jeffrey Tyler Sick. I also have a personal website, jtylersick.com, um where I post my commentary regularly. It doesn't it's not like a blog, so it doesn't email you when I post, but mm -hmm. you can check that. Um, either one of those pretty often. Okay. Well, Jeffrey Tyler Sick, thank you for taking the time to talk. And we might have you back here in the near future just to talk a little bit more about, especially where politics and religion intersect. Yeah, I would love that. Thank you so much. All right. Yep. Take care. Thank you so much for taking uh, being a part of this conversation with Jeffrey. There are several links that are related to this episode in the show notes. I do hope you will take advantage of them. 
Um, also, just wanted to remind you of the other podcast that I do called Lectionary Q. This podcast focuses on uh, looking at a text from the Revised Common Lectionary and um, adding in a reflection and asking some questions. It's something that I've been trying to uh, was started um, in the fall of 2022 and took a break and started it up again late last year. Um, you can find it and subscribe to the podcast by going to lectionaryq, all one word, dot substack, dot com. Also, as we finish up this episode, please consider sharing this once you've listened to it. Pass it on to a friend or family member that might want to hear um, stories about where church and public policy intersect. And that's it for this episode of Church in Maine. Again, please remember to rate and review this episode on your favorite podcast app. That does help others find this podcast. Finally, also consider donating so that we can continue to produce more episodes. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Thanks again for listening. Take care, Godspeed, and I'll see you very soon.